And when I presented it, well, at the end of the presentation, somebody in the audience came up and said, you know, I'm from the NSA. And if you would have told us you were presenting this, we would have stopped it. And I said, well, that's why I didn't tell you. Hi, and welcome to Cyber Reason's Malicious Life B-Sides. I'm Ren Levy. The modern landscape of cybersecurity threats is quite varied. There's ransomware, keyloggers, DDoS attacks, spam, phishing, corporate breaches, blackmail, SIM swapping, and the list goes on and on. I mean, we're closing in on our 200th episode here in Malicious Life, and we still haven't covered everything there is to cover. But back in the 1980s, in the very early days of the personal computer revolution, there was basically only one threat, the computer virus. And even it was so rare right up to the late 80s that many computer professionals regarded it as a myth. Even the legendary Peter Norton, who went on to write one of the early antivirus software, is famously known to have said in 1988 that computer viruses are nothing more than an urban legend, like the mythical alligators in the sewers of New York. But viruses were real. They were born from the early experiments in self-replicating programs in the 1960s and 70s, carried out by isolated programmers in various academic institutions and commercial enterprises who had access to the colossal and pricey computers of that time. And it was our guest today, Dr. Fred Cohen, who was the first to recognize the importance and potential impact of computer viruses. In his 1984 seminal paper, Computer Viruses, Theory and Experiments, Cohen not only introduced the name computer virus, a term invented by his mentor, Leonard Edelman, but was also the first to analyze computer viruses in a rigorous mathematical way, proving that computer viruses were not only practical, but that they were in fact inevitable. That is, a system does not need to be quote-unquote weak or vulnerable to be prone to a viral attack. It is susceptible to viruses by its very nature. Furthermore, Fred also proved, in the mathematical sense of the word, that it is impossible to create an antivirus program that will be able to detect and stop all possible viruses. We might say that In a sense, Fred Cohen predicted our modern world of an almost endless variety of malware and threats, and a similar variety of defensive programs and algorithms. Nate Nelson, our senior producer, spoke with Dr. Cohen about his early research into computer viruses, his work with the U.S. Army, the panicky response from the U.S. government, and the parallels between computer viruses and mental viruses, i.e. memes. That's one interesting conversation. I can promise you that. Enjoy the interview. Fred, bring me back to the 80s. Where were you? What were you doing when you started to publish research? 
I was in a class being taught by Lena Edelman. That's the A in the RSA, uh, Ravis Shamir Edelman Crypto System. And so Len was uh, teaching uh, graduate classes there, and I was a graduate student taking his, I guess it was probably called computer security or something, whatever it was, cybersecurity course. And I was sitting in the class, and we were discussing some attacks that had happened at UCLA. And what happened there was uh, because of the way computers interpret commands, you type in a command, and there might be multiple instances of a file of the same name um, in your path. So when you do execution, there's a, a sequence of places it will look to find the program that you're asking it to run. So what somebody had done was placed a Trojan horse uh, program in the path in user local or something, user local bin. And so it, it was the same name as the command in user bin or bin or you know wherever it was. So it would intercept the natural mechanism of deciding what to execute next would run the wrong program, the, the Trojan horse, instead of the normal program that you would run. So this is how they had broken into systems. And when they did that, whoever ran that program would be granting them the authority of that user based on the fact that that user had run the program. So that's sort of the common model. Um, so at that point in time, when we were discussing that, it was just literally the light bulb flashing above your head. So I immediately realized that if that program that was in the path was able to replace itself or replace other programs in the path, then it would spread from place to place using the authority, you know, the authorization of each user that ever used it to infect all of the things that they had access to. So, so it's just a, you know, it took an instant to realize it and, you know, immediately it was a problem. And I talked to Len Edelman uh, you know, the professor in the class about it at the end of that class. And he said, sure, go do an experiment. <laughs> so we did experiments. And the experiments showed that um, we could, you know, infect essentially all the users on a computer system within a very short period of time by introducing one of these things. And so Len also came up with the term computer virus. He said, that's sort of like a, a virus, right? Said, okay, that works for me. So that's, that's how the, the word got to be used in that context. And then we did further experiments. I just want to note the experiments that we did were designed to be able to safely remove it. We were concerned, I was concerned, that you know if a copy of the program got into some other machine and started copying itself there and you know place to place to place, immediately understood the transitive you know, flow of information that would generate massive problems you know, across how, however far it spread. So the design of this particular one was it would not reproduce without my explicit approval so that I could then though, tr you know, track where it went, only allowed to go to places that, you know, we're not going to do any particular harm and then remove it afterwards because I kept copies of the originals so I could undo the whole thing. And of course I was a systems administrator on those systems. And so that meant that I had the authority to stop things from happening, to access anything on the system and so forth. So, so that was done very safely to find the numbers. And then we subsequently did instrumentation of a system. Uh, I believe it was at JPL, Jet Propulsion Labs. They had some systems that we just instrumented. We, all we did was look, you know, add to the audit trails the information we needed to figure out how a virus would spread if it was placed anywhere. And what we found was that you could very quickly take over those systems in their normal operating modes. So that was sort of the end of that. And then at that point, 
you know, once we realized that people said no more experiments because you know, <laughs> we, we already know. And then the other thing was we got to do a, an experiment on classified systems. So there were some systems that were in use. We had to fly out into the desert to where they were, you know, flying test flights on planes. And, and uh, in the middle of the night, you know, we would do a color change on those systems. So you would take all the media off the systems and then come up with clean, fresh system disks um, and, you know, wipe out the memory and everything else. And then we would do experiments overnight. And then when we were done, we'd have to clean it all up. So you'd have to take all those disks out of the system, wipe out the memory and all the other storage, and then place the normal operating environment into the system so it could be used during the day. So we were doing color changes back and forth. And what we demonstrated there um, was that we could uh, spread from the least trusted user to the most trusted user unhindered, right? So this was the problem with the Bella Padula model of security is that the least trusted user can put information there that gets used by more trusted users and it works its way up. So taking the authority of each user that uses it, it gets higher and higher until it has um, maximum, I guess, access to classification. And then using covert channels, you could then exfiltrate the information from the uh, highest classified level out. I'm not so sure this would be so common today. Why would they have let grad students run experiments on classified military networks? The mission of DARPA, and I believe at that time ARPA, was to avoid strategic surprise. So that's, that is the overarching mission. And they sponsor research and development and demonstration programs um, to protect the United States from you know, strategic surprise, <laughs> figure out what might happen and keep it from causing long-term or serious harm to the country. So at that point in time, the research had to do with uh, the overarching research associated with the ARPANET had to do with the fact that computer networks at that time were, I'll just use the term brittle for lack of a better term. That is to say, um, if anything goes wrong, the network doesn't work, and that's a limitation to scaling. But also, it's a problem for continuity. Re remember, this is the era when nuclear war was a serious concern. I guess it's again becoming important <laughs> if we start to look at it. But the, the prospect of global nuclear war was that Somebody launches an attack, takes out a couple of critical nodes, and it's all over. You can't communicate. At that point, there was even, uh, you know, there's an emergency communication system that's based on ground waves, GWEN, GWEN ground wave um, emergency network, where they basically take, you know, big things and smash the ground with them, big heavy things. And so you can send out Morse code, if you like, you know, by banging on the ground and with earthquake sensors across the country, you can get the message, right? So, so that was the level of concern um, of being wiped out. So the idea was that for computer networks, um, if you created a network that was resilient, then it would be able to survive the failure of one link or one node or, you know, some any given number of links and nodes. So that was the object of that. And, and that was done in the defense context for, you know, obvious reasons. You want to be able to make sure you can control what's going on, especially when you have people in, you know, with nuclear weapons all over the place. Were people actually attacking computer networks in any meaningful sense during this time? There were always serious, malicious, intentional attacks on computer systems before they were networked. Um, you know, before this sort of networking, there was always, you know, there were modems, uh, modulator, demodulator, so people could dial in and other similar 
communications modes, hard, hard wires between different parts of a facility or f- between facilities. So this, this was always a concern, you know, com- uh, cybersecurity, uh, you know, maybe not, you know, when they had physically isolated machines in World War II. <laughs> but, but even then, you know, there were communications that were being intercepted, you know, for, for military uh, purposes and for intelligence purposes and just businesses operating against businesses. You know, corporate spying has gone on, you know, from time immemorial. So there were serious threats and serious attacks at that time. And against, you know, the global military networks, there were certainly very serious threats. Remember, this is the Cold War. Um, this is when, well, I don't, I don't know the exact time frames, but it's in a similar era uh, to where, you know, we had submarines that were intercepting communications cables, you know, under, you know, under the ocean between different parts of, of the, uh, the Soviet bloc and, and China and physically, you know, modifying those cables. Same time frame as, uh, I, you know, I think maybe the thing was a little bit after that. That's a, you know, surveillance device to put in the U.S. Embassy in Moscow as a gift. And, and it looked like a, uh, you know, a logo of the United States, but inside it, it had some device you could shoot in radio waves and hear back, get a reflection of the vibrations in the room so you could, sur- you know, covertly surveil. So this has been going on forever. The best strategy for organizations to avoid becoming a victim of ransomware is to prevent the attack from being successful in the first place. Cyber Reason remains undefeated in the fight against ransomware because it moved beyond alerting to deliver an operation-centric approach that detects and prevents ransomware attacks at the earliest stages of initial ingress and lateral movement. The CyberReason predictive response capability disrupts ransomware attacks prior to data exfiltration and long before the ransomware payload can be delivered. Visit CyberReason.com to learn more about predictive ransomware protection and how your organization can realize both increased efficiency and efficacy through an operation-centric approach to security operations. If the, the threat, as we, we've established, is real, and if you had proven in your experiments that a virus could propagate throughout computer systems relatively straightforwardly, and that with, you know, countering this model that you mentioned, you could get from least to most privileged user, what then, you know, you finish this uh, field trip, or what, however we want to call it, you get back to your university, what is everybody start to think and, and do about this now that you know computer viruses can work and you know the potential threat? First of all, when you say if, it, there was no time between when I said, oh, this can be done and when it was demonstrated. And, and there's no, no real question about it, right? It's not, this is not something where you find some vulnerability in the system. It's the nature of the way systems operate, right? So a lot of people, you know, they're exploiting vulnerabilities in systems to get in. But to have a successful computer virus, you don't need any vulnerability at all. It is the nature of any system that has transitivity. That is, you can give away information you receive, general purpose functioning, so you can write programs, right, and communication. It's inherent that any such system has viruses. So none of the stuff I did required that you, you know, violate any of the protective mechanisms of the system. 
It just is the way the system operates. It's no different than, you know, mental viruses. I tell you something, you think it's a good idea, you tell somebody else. It's not, you know, I'm not violating your brain by talking to you. <laughs> it's just the way you work. The release of the information was a tad more interesting. So I was talking to uh, a, a person that I knew um, uh, who was you know, very well known in computer security at that time. I talked to him about this paper and he suggested I present it instead of algorithmic authentication of identification at the IFIP conference. So this was called Computer Viruses Theory and Experiments. So he said, yeah, go ahead and do that. So I went ahead and did that. And um, that was interesting because nobody knew what the talk was going to be before I showed up. And when I presented it, um, well, at the end of the presentation, somebody in the audience came up and said, you know, I'm from the, I'm from the government. I'm here to help you. <laughs> That's not quite what they said. They said, you know, I'm from the NSA. And if you would have told us you were presenting this, we would have stopped it. And I said, well, that's why I didn't tell you. So that apparently was the wrong thing to say, because coming back across the border from Canada, you know, I'm, remember, I'm, I'm a graduate student. I'm wearing jeans and, and a T-shirt, you know, and I have a backpack. You know, I'm coming back from a conference in the United States. And in my backpack, you know, I have a, a computer and, and some disks and some papers, you know, the, the brochure or whatever it is, the, the document from the conference. And at the border, you know, the guy looks at me like anybody else crossing the border. Okay, no problem. He goes, types into his computer, and you could see his face drop. as he Whatever he saw on the computer said, holy crap. At which point he did an extremely thorough search. He looked at every sheet of paper and all that, saw some floppy disks, ignored those. <laughs> so there was no way for him to even know what he was looking for and, and allowed me to pass. Um, so that was sort of the beginning of a process of being surveilled um, in various forms over many years um, by that community. And there were other things um, that we encountered over time having to do with their, well, let's say, lack of joy at my work. Honestly, I wasn't aware that you had experienced that. Is that something that you could talk about a little bit more? Well, in most cases, I don't know who was surveilling me because, you know, they were not looking to say, hi, I'm surveilling you. But there were various times that I had been followed and, and uh, I was very, you know, very athletic at the time. Um, I'm not anywhere near as athletic now. So um, it would be very difficult to follow me um, at that time with the technology at that time. The current technology is such that, you know, you just put a, a bug somewhere and you can keep up with it. Did that spying culminate in anything serious for you? So so actually, so there's there's a sort of a story before that. So I was invited to give a talk shortly after that first thing on computer viruses, probably within the next year. Um, I gave the, the talk at the National Security Conference that year and was then invited to a special meeting of folks. Um, in, uh, I guess it was in a large, uh, beautiful conference room in a large building somewhere in Washington, D.C., and uh, came into the room, and there's a whole bunch of people, you know, sitting in a row at, at tables, um, you know, 30, 40 feet back, and I'm standing in the front all alone. Remember, I'm, you know, at this point in my mid-20s, um, a graduate student, 
And um, so uh, I was there to give a talk and then have a discussion. So I gave the talk and then it was time for the discussion. And they came up with a piece of paper that said, and said, sign this or you can't participate in the discussion. (laughs) So I said, I don't sign things without talking to my lawyer. This was a document essentially, you know, that would say, you know, national security, you can't tell anybody everything we're going to discuss is classified. And so, you know, spring it on me, never told me about it in advance or anything like that. So I don't just sign that stuff. So I said, no, there was one other person in the room from IBM, a person from IBM said, I have no interest in, you know, participating in this uh, as a classified discussion. There's no corporate interest for us in that. And so that person also left and everybody else stayed and did whatever they did. So at that point or at some point after that, I was invited to come and give a talk at the National Security Agency. And uh, so, you know, flew into the talk at the NSA and, and it was my way. I walked through airports quickly, just generally speaking at that time frame. I've just, you know, step, 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 walk as quickly as you can reasonably walk, not running, just walking quickly. So I get into, uh, this was National Airport, and get off the plane and walk rapidly to a cab, go out to the cab stand, get on the taxi. And the person, you know, there's a starter for the taxis. And the, the starter for the taxis runs out and stops the taxi from leaving. And two guys in suits, you know, run out of the airport, get into the taxi behind me, and then I'm allowed to proceed. <laughs> so they fall. They followed me over to the NSA. I mean, they knew where I was going, presumably. Well, maybe it wasn't our guy. I don't know. But they followed me over to the NSA, went into the NSA to give give this talk and have discussions with them. And this is in their, you know, their headquarters in wherever. Um, sorry, it's not, it was the Computer Security Center. So it wasn't, um, you know, at the, at the big headquarters for the NSA. It was at the Computer Security Center. So you go up, you know, in the building and do whatever you do to get in the building and get up to the whatever floor it was, probably was the top floor, walk out. And this is a place, it's like an office building with windows, you know, just like any other, no particular marking on the building that I recall. But you get up there and there are military guards, you know, privates or, you know, whatever, with M16s. And they are walking through the rows of this building. You know, it's an open seating, uh, you know, what is it? They had carols, right? And these guards are walking around the room with M16s. There must have been, you know, probably four to eight guards, something like that, for um, 100 people in the room. So they're walking around with their machine guns, looking over people's shoulders at what they're doing, making sure nobody's doing anything they shouldn't do. Of course, how you would know that somebody's doing something they're not supposed to, I have no idea, because I can't imagine that these, you know, military, you know, privates or whatever were particularly, you know, privy to the specifics of what would be a bad thing <laughs> as opposed to a good thing on a computer screen or, you know, on a piece of paper. So I guess it was mostly fear factor. I don't know. Or maybe, you know, to protect the people there in case somebody broke in or somebody pulled a gun. I don't know. So, you know, I give my talk there and they asked me to bring a demonstration with me so I could do a demonstration. I said, sure. So I brought a floppy disk, right? And and this was, it had a computer virus written in a batch file. This was on a, a you know, DOS, you know, three point or two point whatever, right? <laughs> so so command.com is on here, is on the disk along with 
a batch file and the batch file was the virus. It did everything that you needed to do was in that one batch file. So they want the demonstration. So I plug it in to this computer, which is not a, a commercial looking computer. It is a, you know, obviously constructed mechanism, probably designed to duplicate a floppy disk. <laughs> so you put my floppy disk in, you go reboot the machine, and it goes, you know, chunk, 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 for however many minutes. And I presume they were just duplicating the disk because the system never came up and never did anything. Okay, that's fine. So they have a copy of my batch file virus, which is like, you know, five lines long. It's trivial, right? Because writing a computer virus is trivial. And and so, you know, in the discussion we had, they said, well, what can you do to counter it? You know, and I said, well, I mean, so generally speaking, um, transitive inform information flow, sharing, and Turing capability, general purpose computing capability, is an environment in which viruses can survive and thrive, and there's no way out of it. That's the underlying theoretical limitation. And, and so they said, well, you know, that can't work. Well, I said, well, one-way communication, of course, can work. And they said, well, that can't work. I, and, and I didn't say it in the room, but my thinking was, gee, don't, doesn't anybody in this room ever listen to the radio <laughs> like on the, on the way to work in your car? Of course, one-way communication works. We've been doing that forever. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, they didn't appear to me to be the sharpest tools in the shed when it came to this stuff. You know, if we were talking even five years ago, we um, we might be de debating the, the pressing danger of like WannaCry, not Petya, so on. Um, but nowadays, obviously, we talk a lot more about like supply chain ransomware, that kind of thing, um, tend not to result from self-replicating computer programs, um, but actively exploiting specific vulnerabilities. Um, you, as the person who came up with the computer virus in some sense, um, are computer viruses important anymore? You know, in the early days of computer viruses, the use of these cryptographic checksums, one of the things we noticed was interdependencies. That is to say, you know, it's not just a program alone that is potentially viral, but it, it exists in an environment. And the combination of things in an environment could produce a, <coughs> computer, produce a virus, even though none of the individual components are viral on their own. So in order to check things, you need to check not just the program, but all the libraries it depends on and the operating system and the, the bootloader and everything else. Yeah, so you're drawing the parallel to modern supply chain. It is the transitive flow of information, right? So if I modify um, a program at some source and it ends up in, the, in some other program because they included it and somebody else included it, it's not reproducing itself. It's being reproduced in the environment. So in that sense, um, it may, in fact, if you look at the technical definition, be a virus. Regardless of that, nothing has changed. There is nothing new about that. We've known about it for a very long time. Sure. But even if the fundamentals from back then remain relevant, there's still a difference, right? And like the, the nature of today's threats. Today, we're talking about a much more complex social environment with the people involved. So when you talk about supply chain, you know, from a standpoint of piece of software, that's largely addressed by things like SBOM, the software bill of materials, which uses cryptographic checksums to check for changes and allow you to uh, identify uh, the authenticity and reliability of, of information and content and also then try to 
associated with its sourcing. So you can find out where it came and how it came here and then what you have so that you can figure out what you have to fix once you've identified something is broken. But, you know, th- this is, you know, part of, of a problem that extends beyond the technology. You can't do cryptographic checksums on the ideas in people's minds. So we're spreading social memes and we're using that through computers, right? And that's been done for a long time, right? There was the, what was it, the good times virus that people didn't call it a virus at the time because they didn't understand, but it's a mental virus. There's an email that said, you know, there's a virus spreading in this email, tell everybody, <laughs> right? And, and then after that, you know, the virus, the same kind of thing spread out. Oh, don't make copies of this email and send it to everybody because that's the virus. So they send copies of the don't copy it email out. So the environment of people interacting with people through automated means, you know, that's the same stuff. It's just that we can't control it with bits and bytes. So influence operations are exploiting the technology for effective communication, sharing, transitivity. You can give away information you receive, right? And general purpose computing, people think. So you can't stop the spread of viral memes. And so influence operations is a field where we're looking at the cognitive aspects of people, people with computers working together, groups and organizations and whole societies. And we're trying to address the the social issues associated with that in terms of understanding and figuring out how to detect and and mitigate these malicious, um, you know, memes, if you will, the disinformation that's being pushed out. So it's all the same stuff in terms of the basic understanding. CK Music.